You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I'd like to thank everyone listening for joining us today. Today we're joined by Dr. Dennis Cooper, who is a professor of medicine and chief of the bone marrow transplant service at Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Dennis, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Good to be here. All right, so I'm going to tell a personal story. I remember being a resident, which many years ago, I was at Yale New Haven Hospital, and Dennis Cooper, who was junior faculty at that point, Dennis, you returned from Seattle after spending several months there, and I remember hearing you you talk about BMT allogeneic a long time ago, but I remember it was pretty graphic. I just want to ask you to say a couple words about that experience. It's a long time ago really then setting the, the background for talking about CAR-T now. Well, yeah, I went to uh, Seattle in 1983, and at that time they accepted visiting fellows for two months. And I think I worked harder during the, those two months than I did my entire residency because we took in-hospital call. And the thing that I remember the most were that there were certain dead ends that you would come to with the after allogeneic transplant, the patient who had CMV disease, patient who had bad graft-versus-host disease that basically we couldn't do anything about and except kind of wait for them to develop a mortal complication. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot of years later. Let me ask you about BMT now, because that, that's a long time ago. What, what, is, what does allo-BMT look like now in comparison? Well, I think uh, particularly recently, there's been new drugs which we can use to control graft-versus-host disease. There's been a new conditioning regimen where we give cytoxin, high-dose cytoxin, after the stem cells, which has allowed us to now do transplants on patients who only have haploidentical donors. And for the patients who are getting regular donors, we're also using the post-transplant cytoxin because it dramatically reduces the incidence of serious graft-versus-host disease. I think perhaps the, one of the major changes in allogeneic transplant is that we're now doing much older patients with uh, reduced-intensity transplants and relying more upon the immune system to eradicate their disease than trying to just wipe it out with uh, chemotherapy and or radiation. So along those lines, what did we learn from allo-BMT, graft-versus-host disease, that later may have informed the ability to do cellular therapy? Yeah, I think that the major thing that we learned was that particularly in the experience with patients with CML who were transplanted and then relapsed, that simply giving lymphocytes from the original donor would put 80% of them into a durable remission. So that was a tremendous example of the uh, power of, uh, of T-cells to eradicate malignancy. And I think for a lot of our patients where they've had so much chemotherapy, changing gears and relying upon an immune therapy has made a tr- dramatic impact. And I think we've kind of borrowed from the solid tumors where nobody expected patients with head and neck cancer or lung cancer to respond to checkpoint inhibitors, and yet some of them have had very excellent and durable responses 
indicating that even in those situations where we've not done well with chemotherapy, that the immune system can be far superior. That makes me wonder because a lot of the patients responding to checkpoint inhibitors have tumors that I'll call molecularly complex. They have a lot of mutations. But, but I guess what it illustrates is that the immune system might be able to treat clones of cells as opposed to a homogeneous tumor. Correct. I mean, and, and then every once in a while you might get lucky. Maybe there's a mutation in the tumor cell that is particularly immunogenic, and then the, the immune system might play a great role in eradicating that tumor. Yeah. So it's an interesting thought, at least for me, thinking about that where we're at with CAR-T now reflects some of the progress in, in uh, checkpoint inhibitors and also some of what we learned from BMT. Yeah, and in fact, now there's some studies combining the two because we think that there's certain people who have what they call T-cell exhaustion, yeah. where the CAR T-cells just really are, are kind of impotent and, and uh, giving a punch. And so now there's some studies where people who maybe not having a good response are having checkpoint inhibitors to kind of wake up the CAR T-cells. Yeah. At a 60,000-foot level, for everyone listening, including for myself, but what is CAR-T therapy? What's the principle of it, and what's the practical part of it? Well, I think the principle is, is that if you can find a target that is limited to the malignant cells and, not, and, and does not appear on normal cells, that theoretically the CAR-T cells is an option. We can do that fairly well with lymphomas and leukemias because most of the other cells in the body don't express uh, CD19. And similarly, for patients who are being treated with the new uh, anti-BCMA CAR T cells, wiping out BCMA is not going to cause them to have problems with their heart or or their lungs. So theoretically, if you can find a unique target on the uh, tumor cells that the CAR T cells may at some point become an option. So far, it has not happened yet for things like glioblastoma mm-hmm. and some other tumors, but I think that, uh, again, it might, it might be just a matter of time before that does work. Let me ask you to say a little bit more in terms of, okay, so you find, you find an antigen that's unique, and then what happens? Well, then I, I think that uh, it just has to be tested to, to see whether you can develop the right response, the right type of CAR T cells to actually attack the target, and it may be that it will take more than the CAR T cells because it's possible the CAR T cells won't be able to infiltrate into the tumor cells as well. So you might have to do something in addition. Maybe you'll even give intraarterial therapy of uh, of CAR T cells. People are now testing it in patients with abdominal carcinomatosis, where there's basically tumor cells floating around in the peritoneum. In that situation, probably just inject the CAR T cells mm-hmm. uh, into the the peritoneum as well. So, but in those particular situations, there's just not enough data to say, is this going to work out? Is it not going to work out? And then the other question is going to be whether this might be able to be accomplished gentler with a slightly different strategy called bispecific T-cell engager. The one that uh, we have all been using recently is blinitumumab, mm-hmm. which if we think of an antibody as a Y, one arm of the Y is engaging the T cells and the second arm is engaging the tumor cells. And by placing them in close position, the T cell kills the, the tumor cell. So one of the questions would be is, can we accomplish some of this uh, that we're doing with the CAR T cells? Can we accomplish the same thing using these bispecific T cell engagers? And, and they appear to be less toxic. They're likely to be also less expensive. And by the way, let me ask you about that, because it's interesting, blinitumumab, which I've used only for one patient, but 
who had neurotoxicity from it. Is that related to the whole CAR-T mechanism? Well, in fact, you're absolutely correct. They've now renamed the, the neurotoxicity is immune-associated cell neurotoxicity. So it's called ICANs. Mm -hmm. And because we know that it's not just CAR T cells where people can get neurotoxicity, it's also things like blenitumumab or other bispecific antibodies that are being tested. Uh, so it's not unique to CAR T cells. Okay, and actually it's very, it's helpful for me to, to hear about it in, a, in that broader sense. All right, so you identify an antigen, and how do you actually make CAR T cells? What, what's the process? Well, I don't. Uh, okay. But the, what happens is, and now it's pretty routinely set up, is that the cells, uh, the patient undergoes phoresis. Their lymphocytes are collected. Their T cells are separated. And they're, they're, they're sent, and well, this all happens at the production site. And at the production site, they basically genetically reprogram the cells to produce this receptor that is very specific for the tumor that you're targeting. Those cells are frozen, shit back, and usually within a period of like three weeks, and then the patient's ready to be treated. Let me ask you about the genetic engineering part of this. There were the trials, this is probably just several years of genetic engineering, where some patients developed leukemia. It was very much in the literature and in the press. Any worry about that in this situation? Well, I think there's always concern, although I think a lot of people feel that these vectors are deficient and shouldn't cause this. I, I do know that one of the patients from uh, one of the early patients treated at Penn who had a miraculous response to CLL and I know is still alive and doing well, that they realized that his CAR T-cell insert was inserted into a gene called TET2, which basically immortalized the cell and kept the CAR T-cells persistent mm -hmm. and was able to eliminate the tumor cells. So that was actually a good, it was a good thing. thing. But I, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why the FDA wants to track all these patients because they do want to find out if, if there's any long-term sequelae from using things like retroviruses and lentiviruses to introduce the genes. Sure. Again, we'll go back to 60,000 feet. We, we sort of went, we went down to 2,000 to look at the process, but in terms of looking at efficacy, how often does CAR-T, and obviously there's a lot of different diseases, and, and you can even break it down if you would, but how often is it a home run, and how often is it, does, is it a strikeout where, where we really don't make progress for the patient? Well, I think that's the million-dollar question. You know, the early trials for lymphoma would indicate that maybe 40% of patients are going to be cured, which in, on the one hand sounds kind of modest, but uh, these patients probably had almost a 0% right. chance of doing well. Mm -hmm. In childhood leukemia, you know, it, it's been more dramatic. Fortunately, in kids, they don't need it that often. You know, childhood AOL is one of the modern success stories where we can expect probably 90% of kids to be cured with conventional therapy, but for this other 10% where they're not cured, this is going to be a big advance. You know, for adults with AOL, I don't think that the results have been nearly as good, and I think we often conflate the, we, we say ALL as if it's one disease. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we've known for a long time that childhood ALL does a whole lot better than adult ALL. And right now, it appears that childhood ALL does much better with CAR T cells than adult ALL. Mm. And, any idea why? Well, I think that the adult ALL cells are probably genetically different. 
they have you know some of these much more often have these high risk mutations and it's also almost certain that they don't tolerate the therapy as well as a kid right now unless the products change i think that they're probably not going to be widely used in adults but it might be better to use in a patient who still has minimal residual disease at the end of a conventional therapy mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. then perhaps you're asking less of the CAR T cell right. than you are in a patient with frank relapse. And I'm remembering back quite a while, but at one point with, again, allogeneic or autologous bone marrow transplant, the concept was, you know, treat, treat, treat the patient until they're in the deepest remission possible. And then there was a little bit of a sense of don't add so much toxicity that the transplant then will potentially the patient die from it. What's the philosophy with CAR-T, getting them deeply into remission or? Well, is- no. I mean, I think that uh, the, the CAR-T has been right now predominantly used in patients who are, have resistant disease. I think we're going to have to see whether it works in patients who are MRD positive at the end of conventional therapy. And right now for lymphoma, it's prove for people who have resistant disease. So you, even if you wanted to, mm-hmm. it would be very difficult to get them into a deep remission without before the CAR T cells. Because actually, in a sense, if they were in a very deep remission, they wouldn't be eligible. That's right. Or yeah. they might get autologous stem cell transplant right. instead. Right. Having having done both and still doing both, allotransplant and, and CAR T, and I and I know it's not really often a choice between one or the other. But when patients ask you about this issue, how do you advise them? Well, you know, it was kind of interesting listening to the speakers today, but I would say that in terms of uh, patients who, let's say, relapse after an autologous transplant for lymphoma, one of the speakers alluded to the fact that we would often try to do an allogeneic transplant on them. Right now, we would do a CAR T cell. And I think one of the major reasons is that with allogeneic transplant, the patient is really never out of the woods because of things like graft-versus-host disease. You know, with the CAR T cells, what we've really seen is that most patients, their performance status is approaching normal about a month after therapy. They may have some issues with blood counts. You know, we have to be worried about uh, perhaps hypogammaglobulinemia. But I, I always think of allogeneic transplant as sometimes the, the gift that keeps giving mm-hmm. uh, with complications. And whereas the CAR T cell, there's a kind of defined beginning and end of the process. And so I, I think that many of us are thinking that in a patient who could get CAR T cell, particularly for lymphoma, that would be the way to go rather than an allogeneic transplant. So a final question, not that any of us, you included or me included, have a crystal ball, but where do you think the field is going? What are some of the things you're excited about? Well, I think that right now, if you say to me, what are the studies that I think are important? I'd like to see this done in patients much earlier with things like myeloma, because with myeloma, although we're seeing these incredible responses, the majority of the patients have progressive disease within a year. And so that's not what we're really after. I think what we really want to know is, can we deliver this knockout punch if it's given to patients earlier in their disease course? Same thing with ALL, is that maybe instead of treating it in adults for resistant disease, maybe we should do it in patients who are high risk but are in first remission. Yeah, yeah which, which seems to make a lot of sense. 
And my final question would be, I've heard talk about armored cars and all type of, uh, there may be some other names that are used too. Can you say well, I think there's a lot of uh, genetic engineering that's still being done on the cells. I think one of the first things that we're waiting for are what are called off-the-shelf CAR T cells, where we've learned that during that period of time where a patient is accepted to get a CAR T cell and the time they get the product, they can become very ill. And that's during that process of manufacture. So if you had something off-the-shelf, you could basically treat them very quickly after you they've been accepted as a candidate. Similarly, there may be ways of turning off the cells once they're functioning. Let's say you're getting excessive toxicity. You may have a gene program into the CAR T cells that may make it susceptible to things like, let's say, acyclovir. So you could probably turn off the CAR T cells. But I think still the, the, the major question is how are we going to increase the efficacy? It was absolutely very exciting having known you for many years and sort of seen your work in allogeneic BMT and, and now to CAR T. How, how exciting. Very exciting. So this is Dr. Ken Miller, and this is our LOS podcast series. I want to thank Dr. Dennis Cooper for joining us today. Dennis, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. For a listing of our continuing education activities, including continuing education webinars and publications on CAR-T cell therapy and all other healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.